So turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah. Um, Sunday mornings, we're coming close to the end of the book now, and today we're on chapters 11 and 12. Now, just some navigation as we get into Nehemiah. The history books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they run together. Ezra and Nehemiah describe the return of God's people to Jerusalem and to the promised land after the exile in Babylon. Their captivity in Babylon, which lasted 70 years, is done, and they're back in Jerusalem, the city of God, and the land, the promised land. Or to summarize that, they're back home. And as we've worked through the book, we've seen how under Nehemiah's leadership, the walls of the city have been rebuilt. The temple had already been rebuilt under Ezra. That's described in the book of Ezra. Nehemiah describes the rebuilding of the walls of the city. And now with the temple rebuilt and with the walls rebuilt, Nehemiah, the strategic leader with Ezra, the Bible teacher, gather all the people together, that's Nehemiah 7, under the word of God, Nehemiah 8, the word of God back at the heart, center of the corporate life of God's people. And then in chapter 9, as they read the word and listen to it, they're moved by the Spirit to pray, confessional praying. They pray confessing their sin, conscious they have turned from God and his word, and found themselves in exile. But now they are back in Jerusalem, in the land. And their prayer, yes, it is a prayer of confession, but they do focus a bit on their sin, but primarily the focus is on God, his promises to carry and to call a people to himself and his mercy towards them. So they pray, and then in chapter 10, they renew their covenant commitment to the Lord. A personal, public, serious commitment to the Lord right across the board. Youngsters, older couples, older people, single people, grannies, grandchildren, everybody. Nobody on the sidelines. Nobody on the sidelines or in the stands, everybody on the pitch. A serious, public, personal commitment to the Lord. And then corporately, as God's people, they pledge to live distinctively in the world, to be a light to the world, to the gateway, uh, to the nations surrounding them. And then we come to chapters 11 and 12, which we've got on page 406 in the church Bibles. Now, I want us to read through these two chapters uh, to get our heads around the content because they're important. But I want to read them in a slightly different way. You're all kind of sighing in despair as you look at squillions of names. Uh, just to say, when you're in the new creation with them, they'll think your names are daft. <laughs> Imagine someone being called John. Yeah. Sorry if you're John. So we're going to read through this a little bit like walking across a river on stepping stones. We're going to read a bit, jump, and then land on the next stone. And, uh, and let me encourage you to listen. Remember Nehemiah chapter 8, the people listened attentively to the word. Now, let me show you what's going on here. Chapter 11.1 through to 12.26. Just try to see the, uh, that in your Bibles, that section. That all describes the repopulation of Jerusalem. And remember, yes, Nehemiah is into his lists, but lists are lists of real people who lived then. 
They've played their part in the rebuilding, the reformation work in their lifetime. And God saw them as significant. And so we play our part and God sees us as significant. I don't think many of the people there would have felt significant. But God's word says they were. Okay, so chapter 11 through 1226 describes the repopulating of the city. Let's read chapter 11, verse 1. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then verses 4 to 24 list the people, the 10% chosen by lots, who came to live in Jerusalem, one out of 10 of the people. And that uh, list goes on to verse 24. And then verses 25 to 35 describe the 90%, the people who remained in the villages and the towns. So let me read just the introduction in verse 25. And as for the villages, when out of the city in the surrounding towns and villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in, uh, I can't pronounce that word, and its villages, and so on and so forth. So that's chapter 11. Yep. The city repopulated, 10% go to live in Jerusalem, and the rest of God's people living in the land, the promised land, the land of Israel, the land of Judah. And then chapter 12, verses 1 to 26, more lists, but they're different kinds of lists. Now, I want you to imagine at this significant moment in the history of God's people, yet the city is repopulated. Zion, the city of God, his temple's up, his walls are up, the people are back. The rest of the people are back in the promised land. And the writer at this point pauses and takes a deep breath and reflects on the last 100 years since the exile ended and lists the three groups of returning exiles. So it's a little bit like, yes, this is a wonderful day, but let's remember, it took a hundred years to get to this day. So, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 12 describe the first wave of returning exiles nearly a century earlier. 12.1, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua. So if you went back to Ezra at the beginning of the book, you'd read about uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua leading the first wave of exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And uh, their names uh, are listed. And then verse 12 uh, of chapter 12 and following describe the second wave of returning exiles. Verse 12 of chapter 12, and in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, and so on and so forth. And then look on to verse 26, which brings us bang up to date. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josdak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, 
and the scribe. So, um, let me summarize. Chapter 11 describes the repopulating of the city and the rest of the people in the promised land. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 26, a bit of perspective, a survey of the last hundred years of how God's people had come back after the exile, right through to the present day Nehemiah's time. And then comes a bit without too many names that we can read. So verse 27 of chapter 12, it's a great section that describes a great day in the history of God's people. Let's read from verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephtophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates of the wall. And then on to verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. And above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And then the priests, verse 41, and then more, verse 42, and then reading it, verse 43, they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And then the chapter ends, verses 44 to 47, describing God's people serving in the temple. And uh, let me conclude the reading with the first verse of chapter 13. On that day, that is the day the wall was dedicated, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. The word of God, central. So, that's chapters 11 and 12. Yep, the city repopulated, the promised land repopulated, and then this great day of celebration as uh, there is great joy to the Lord because God's people are back in God's place for them. Now, we pray that God will bless to us um, this word. Let's pray and ask his help. Lord, give us ears to hear what you are saying to the church, to this church, Chalmers, in our time, for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll see on the service sheet, I've got two things to say, working for the kingdom and experiencing joy in working for the kingdom. I'm going to save these, though, for the last seven minutes. I've got something wonderful to tell you first. You've got to work hard. Now, 
On that particular day, back in 445 BC, when all these choirs were singing, at this particular time back then, in the history of God's people, it was really special and significant. It was the triumph of spiritual reformation. It's what all the struggle had been for. It's what these hundred years of rebuilding, the goal, the result of spiritual reformation. Now, if spiritual reformation, let me define that for us again, is, is putting right what had gone wrong, for example, or recovering what has been lost, or putting back at the center what had been sidelined, like the, the restoration of the centrality of the Word of God at the heart of the people's life. If Reformation meant a renewed commitment to pray and a seriousness amongst God's people, then what's the end goal? What's the triumph, if you like, of all of that? What is the aim? Well, the aim is that God's people are back where they should be in terms of their relationship with God. That they are right with God. And therefore, and it's logical, that if God's people are back where they should be in terms of their relationship with God, then then they will be a blessing to the nation they are in to the world in which they live. Now, what does it look like practically on the ground for God's people to be where God needs them or wants them to be? Now, we might answer the question in this way. The right place for God's people to be, that they might be a blessing and that God might use them to build his kingdom, are when God's people are in God's place for them, under God's rule, working for him and enjoying him. That's how God's kingdom advances. Let me say it again. Here's the aim. Here's the goal of spiritual reformation. God's people in God's place for them, under God's rule over them, working for God, enjoying God, and therefore a blessing to the nation. That's the goal. Now let's take it step by step. What does it mean for God's people to be in God's place under God's rule? Now, you've got to work a little bit harder here, because what it meant for them then is not the same as what it means for us now. Let me explain. What it meant in Nehemiah's time under the old covenant for God's people to be in God's place for them, under God's rule, what it meant for them was that they had to be back in the land, the promised land that God had given them. And at the heart of that land was Jerusalem or Zion, the city of God, where the temple was, where God was. God's people, in God's place for them, under God's rule, which for them was the law of Moses, God's law. 
Now do you see why this was such a significant time? Why this was the triumph of spiritual reformation? I mean, in the exile, the city of Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed, it was burned, the walls were destroyed, and there were no people left. But now after the exile, the temple's back, the walls are up, God's people are back in the city and the land. God's people, once again, in God's place. And remember Nehemiah chapter 8, under God's rule, all of them gathered in Jerusalem at the water gate for that great big Bible conference under the authority of the word of God. Now, you can see now why, I think, I hope, that that is why the temple in Jerusalem needed rebuilt. The walls needed rebuilding and the city repopulating because Jerusalem, or Zion, they mean the same thing, is the city of God, is the light to the world. God had always said in his word that I will build a city. And that city in the land that I will give my people will be a beacon, a light, a lighthouse to the nations of the earth. Now, I could uh, give you one of, uh, I could give you a thousand Bible references, maybe not quite that, but a lot, about the significance of the city of Jerusalem and its significance in God's purposes. Let me quote from one prophecy. Um, turn up, if you've got a church Bible, to page 796, or type into your phones the word Zechariah. Zechariah, which we plunder at Christmas, but it's good to plunder it in March. Zechariah chapter 8, page 796. Now this is a prophecy written during the exile in Babylon, when God's people are not in God's place, not under God's rule, and therefore not being a blessing to the nations. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion, Jerusalem, with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Remember that Jerusalem was built on Mount Sinai, where Moses was given the law, where God appeared. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And you can imagine that if Ezra had any wits about him at all, when the people all were repopulating the city, that he would have read this prophecy. Once again, old people and children will be playing in the streets of Jerusalem. The streets, verse 5, shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of these people in those days, if you think it's great, that's what he's saying, 
then I think God says it's even greater than you think it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now, keep a finger stuck in there, um, and we'll come back to that maybe later. Now, do you see how significant this day is in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, the people are back, the walls built, the temple up. Because once again, God's people are in God's place under God's rule and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through that great city, a light in a dark world. Now, what does it mean for us as God's people today to be in God's place under God's rule? It doesn't mean that we all need to go and live in the city of Jerusalem. At least not yet. Let me just build up the logic. The Lord Jesus came to Jerusalem as God's Messiah King. He died outside the city walls within sight of the walls that Nehemiah built. He rose from the dead and went back into the city. He ascended into heaven and gave his spirit. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, where? In Jerusalem. And the church of Christ was born, and the church went out from Jerusalem, empowered By the Spirit, the church is commissioned to take the gospel to every nation and people of the earth. So what does it mean for us as Christians to be in God's place under God's rule? It means to be part of the living church of Christ, which is all over the world. And try to take away from your minds when I talk about the living church of Christ, the global church of Christ, all over the world. Forget labels and names and structures and denominations and all of that. Just just all the thousands, hundreds of thousands of living churches all across the world today that are meeting on a 24-hour cycle. Half of them have already met. Half of them are still to meet. Hundreds, millions of local churches. That's the global church. What it means to be in God's place for Christians means to be part of that. But... To give sharper expression to this on the ground, it means to be part of a local church, a local expression of the global church, God's mission to the world. So when God's people today are in God's place, it means they are part of a living local church, a living local community of believers, and along with every other living local community of believers scattered across the world, witnesses to Jesus. Now, the global church, as I said, is made up of hundreds of thousands of local communities of believers alive to the gospel, living out the gospel where they are pointing people to Jesus. And we are one of them. 
And Gracemount is one of them. And Charleston is one of them. And Cornerstone across the road is one of them. And the bottom line for what it means for God's people to be in God's place for them is to be part of a living local church. So here you are sitting in your place. Right here. You are in exactly the right place according to what God's word says for Christians. Part of a living local church. God's place. Now, you're going to begin to see, too, why there are no places on the sidelines. Everyone needs to be on the pitch. What does it mean for us to live in God's place under God's rule? It means we live under the authority of the Word of God. So here you are in your place. And almost certainly, it's only been two weeks, and you're all sitting in the same seats as last week. It's great. It means I see who's here. You're in God's place for you. You're in the right place. And up here is a lectern and a preacher and a Bible. We're under the authority of the Word. And so, in a church like Chalmers, spiritual reformation or the end goal is to recognize the significance of the local church in God's salvation plan, to commit to it, to be a functioning part of it, and to put its house in order, like praying, like the Bible, and therefore to be witnesses to Jesus in the communities in which he has placed us. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what it means for us now. And our first priority is to make sure that that is what we are like as a local church. And it's what we need to nurture and instill in those who go out from here and lead local churches. And in times of reformation and revival in the church more widely, all this means is that there will be lots and lots of local churches like this. At a covery or a renewal on a bigger canvas, a bigger scale. And that is what we earnestly pray for in the city, this nation. Many, many, many more local churches alive to the gospel, submitting to the rule of God and his word. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, you may have picked up something I said just a few minutes ago. That for us as Christians today, living as God's people in God's place under God's rule... That doesn't mean we go and live in the city of Jerusalem. It means that we are part of a living local church, wherever that happens to be in the world. It doesn't mean we go and live in the city of Jerusalem. And I said a few minutes ago, at least not yet. Because one day we will. If you're a Christian, that is where you are going to spend eternity. In Jerusalem. Along with Ezra, Nehemiah, Mahalel, Messiah, Shemaiah, and all the rest of them. We're all going to laugh at each other's names. We are all going to be together in Jerusalem. 
or more particularly, the New Jerusalem, the place which finds or where Zechariah's prophecy, where your finger is still stuck, will ultimately be fulfilled. Let me read to you, don't turn this up, just listen to this, glance at Zechariah maybe, or Nehemiah, or both, or all three. Here's Revelation 21. These verses might be more familiar uh, to us. What is the absolute, absolute, absolute goal, or the ultimate, ultimate end point, the, the, the last bit of the pathway to spiritual reformation that makes every revival in the history of the church seem puny? Here it is, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen for Zechariah, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. That's Zechariah, ultimately fulfilled in the new Jerusalem, the new creation, where all believing people will live forever with the Lord Jesus. Question, is there a future for the church? Or does the future have a church? These are the cynical questions people are asking today. I wonder if people walking along the road, I'm trying to drag them in off the streets as they go to Waitrose. I should say things like, you can buy bread and waitress, but I can give you the bread of life. <laughs> I wonder if they are walking past and thinking, does the future have a church? Well, the answer to that is that the future is the church and only the church. When all, when Jesus comes back, what he'll do, he'll take his great big divine arms and he'll wrap them around every single local church that is scattered all over the world. Hundreds of thousands, millions of them across the world to glay. If he came back today, he would wrap his arms around all these scattered gatherings, all these lighthouses all over the world. And they will be the new Jerusalem, Zion, the eternal city of God with all believing people through the centuries. Later on in Revelation 21, uh, the new Jerusalem is described. I wish we had time to look at it in detail. Let me give you a couple of verses. Um, this is Jesus' revelation to John in, in Revelation 21. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had, wait for it, a great high wall. You see, Nehemiah thought his wall was great, but nothing like that wall. And I saw no temple in the city, in the new creation, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And you see the progression of God's plan. Back in Nehemiah's time, God was located in the temple in the city. God was in one little tiny bit of that temple in that city. And when the Lord Jesus came, God's temple, if you like, stepped onto the earth. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the temple. And when the Spirit came, the Spirit went into you and me. God's temple is sitting in front of me. You are God's temple, not this building. You are God's temple. And you, Christians, are all over the earth. And one day, and all over the earth, but lots of people in the earth do not have God's Spirit in them. So it's still a mixed world. But one day, all there will be is the presence of God in a perfect world. So we go from God in a room in a temple to God in a new creation. And you and I are caught up in that. We are part of the progression of God's purposes. We are part of the building of God's kingdom to this end. Little puny Chalmers Church, Grace Mount Church, Charleston Church is part of something amazing. It doesn't look like it, at least to me, or feel like it, at least to me, but it's enormously significant for Grace Mount in this city for Charleston and Dundee, for Morningside, that God is building lighthouses on the street corners of this city to point people to the eternal city, to the gate of heaven. It was a big day in Morningside when Costa, which I've now renamed Chalmers Costa, it was a great day when Costa came to town. It was a great day for Morningside when M&S came or when Waitress came to Morningside. And it was a great day, but it was a far greater day when the old schoolhouse came, which is now Cornerstone, when Morningside Baptist, as it was, was here, and when Chalmers came to Morningside Road. This is Holy Corner. And there's about to be a Nigerian church beginning in a month in what used to be the church hall of this building across the street. We're not going to be able to find a space to park. You see what's happening in Morningside? Waitrose is great. But a local church points people to an eternal city and the gateway to heaven. And so the people of Morningside now have no excuse. You cannot miss the church when you walk up this road on a Sunday. And it obligates us to be where? In God's place, under God's rule, which means committed to a local church, this one, living under the word of God, and thus a transformed community, and thus a lighthouse, a beacon that points people to the light of the world. Now, it is exciting when you're in church on a Sunday morning, and I'm excited to preach this, but it's hard. It's hard because we are not in the new creation yet. I mean, this is not a city with streets paved with gold. We're not in Zion or Jerusalem yet. We're still on the journey. And most people in Morningside don't know about Jesus, and most people who don't know about Jesus don't want to know about Jesus. You see, most people don't want to know. And it's hard. It's hard to be in God's place, under God's rule, doing God's work. It's tough, it's tough, it's tough. It's tough to plant a church in Charleston. It's tough to plant a church in Gracemount. Kirsten spoke this morning. It's been three years. The last three months have been really tough for him. 
But boy, is it worth it. Boy, is it worth it to put a lighthouse into Grace Mount. Boy, is it worth it for the people of Grace Mount that there are people who will show them the gateway to heaven. Now, with all that by way of introduction, <laughs> you can see it's much better now to, to, to finish with five minutes on let's work for the kingdom and let's be happy as we do it with an understanding of just the sheer significance of who we are as a local puny church in God's purposes, that we are here in this city because no one else is going to do that to point people to uh, the eternal city. And now you see why we need local churches all over this city, all over the city, little lighthouses in every community. And that was Thomas Chalmers' vision 150 years ago. He said to some rich person, no doubt then, let's have a church extension program. And what he meant, let's have 150 churches in all of these towns growing up around the big cities, like this building. Let me apply it to us as a church. Number one, and I promise you, just five or six or seven or 12 minutes, work for the kingdom of God. In every generation, God's people are called to commitment, all of them, all of them, all of them. And in tough times for the church, where recovery and where reformation is needed, that call comes with a greater urgency. In days of reformation and revival, so when you prepare for reformation and revival, people start banging the drum more and more. And when you move into a period of reformation and trial, it's not hard because the Spirit of God moves people to respond. So, may God, in His Word, call every one of you to work for the kingdom. Nothing matters more. Now is the time in the life of our church to be one of those names who make a public, personal, and serious commitment to the Lord to work for his kingdom. And I pray and believe that in the coming weeks, many of you will stand up here and publicly profess your faith if you haven't done so, and nail your colors not to the mast of this local church, but nail your colors to this spiritual mast to be in God's place, under God's rule that he might be a blessing through you. And may God in his word call us all to that vital work of prayer. May God, by his spirit, move us all, all, all of us to come together to pray, everyone, or pray in your homes the night we meet together here as a church family to pray. I was teaching at Cord this week and I asked them, what do you think would happen if everyone in our church family were to meet together to pray, moved to do so by the Spirit of God? Not moved by me because you like me or because I bang on about it a lot, but moved by the Spirit to come, moved by the Spirit to irresistibly come, and moved when you do come to pray in a way that is laying hold of the promises of God, appealing to the mercy of God. What would happen? Let me give you their answers that night. Two nights ago, one, our community, that's us, would be radically transformed. Two, the community in which we live would be radically impacted. Three, people would become Christians. So, Holy Spirit, will you inspire us to pray? 
And may God in his word call all of us to give our time, our gifts, our money to the church's work in the world here and beyond these walls, that more and more churches would be planted and revitalized in this city, this country, and that the global mission and vision of Jesus would advance. I mean, is it somebody else's job to plant churches, train leaders, graft, think, strategize, maybe? May God in his word call all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us to give sacrificially, really sacrificially of our time, our money for what really matters, the advance of the kingdom of God in the world. Let me encourage you as a church, the brakes are now off for us. In some ways that are particular to us as a church, God has brought us home to God's place under God's rule. And he has showed us things that others rarely see. I am the Lord your God who will provide for you. Therefore, what will we do? May God in his word call some of you, youngsters, into full-time Christian work and service in this country and abroad. In Nehemiah's day, God called some people to go and live in Jerusalem. And the sense from the text is that it wasn't easy for them to leave their homes, their security, and follow God's call. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's good to go and live in Jerusalem. But Zion, the city of God, uh, is always under attack. Always, always under attack. But they went willingly. Is God calling you? Are people you trust suggesting to you that God has gifted you in ways that might suggest full-time Christian work? Then go willingly. If you're not willing, then don't go. Now, full-time Christian work is not a higher form of Christian work. It's not a kind of special thing for specially holy people. It's just what God calls some people to. And if God called everybody to that, then those called to Christian work wouldn't be able to do it because there would be nobody there to support them. God calls us to different things. And the people, chapter 11, verse 2, blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. In other words, the 90% blessed those who went and supported them and encouraged them. And what is God calling you to? To go or to bless those who do go? How do you know if you are valiant? Because someone says to you that you are. But how do you really know? Because you will feel utterly inadequate for the task. That is how you know. How are we going to respond to the enormous vacuum of living churches in this nation? It's wonderful that lots of you are beginning to ask me about planting churches. We kind of dropped Sam's name into the equation. Nobody said that's a bad idea. Feel free afterwards to tell me if you think it is. But it's going to happen. And we must be very, very careful not to do something daft like plan a church in the next 10 minutes because we've got to enjoy this. But imagine if in 10 or 15 years when I have my retirement bash, if I'm still alive, I said, you know, it was amazing what God did for us. And yet, from the day we began in that building, 
we just lost that drive. We're going to do it. There you go. That stuff snagging away at me all the time. I want to come back to chapter 12, verses 27 to 47 next week. And I want to preach a sermon on what we might call reformed worship in the church. What is it we do in our lives that we call worship? What do, why are Sundays so special? Or why are they not special? What is it we do when we stand and sing and bless the Lord? What's going on? Why are we doing it? That's next week. But for now, as we close, I want to hit the big nail on the head. The big point of these verses, joy in working for the kingdom. Spiritual reformation is hard work. It is costly work, but it's joyful work. We lose that joy often. We lose that joy. It's one of the devil's tactics is to make Christians miserable and to make them look miserable. And you know me well enough to know that I'm not being at all superficial about people who have illnesses that rob them of joy. I'm not talking about that kind of joy. I'm talking about a spiritual lacklusterness, a joylessness about the fact that we are the only building, along with the other buildings like us, in this community that is the gateway to heaven. And we're going there ourselves. Now, I would say, if I'm honest with you, that the past weeks, months, longer, years, for me, my overriding emotion is one of sadness, not gladness. There are reasons for that, I guess. But it won't do. Sam and Andy and I, this week in our staff meeting, and we apologize to the ministry associates, we're just saying we, we just have no joy. That's not Well, it's understandable for plenty good reasons, but it's not right when you stumble on stuff like this. And to find joy in Christian service is not to search for something that is elusive or something that some people have because they're just these kind of painful people who are always happy all of the time. It's not to search for something that is banal or superficial or temporary. It is to find what is within us. Because what is within you? God. The Spirit. The joy that comes from knowing that you are His child. And that whatever else you do Monday through Sunday... You are in God's place, under God's rule, and therefore able to be God's blessing. Let me read two verses as we close. Chapter twelve, twenty-seven. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. In verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for, notice these words, God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far, far away. May the Holy Spirit of Jesus liberate us, enable us, make us rejoice with great joy in the work of kingdom building, men, women, Boys and girls, and may our joy 
be heard far, far away. May our singing be heard in the streets. On this recording, if you're listening online. Why? That one person, that many people, will be pointed by this lighthouse to the eternal city of God and saved for all eternity. And go home today and allow yourself, let God encourage you that you are in God's place under God's rule, doing his work with joy, And that's a good place to be. If you're on the sidelines of this church, come onto the pitch. Come onto the pitch. Don't sit in the stands. Come and pray. If God's calling you to go, go. If He's calling you to support those who go, do it. And be happy. Whatever state of mind you have, ask the Holy Spirit to remind you how wonderful it is to be safe for all eternity. Let's pray. Father God, this is a wonderful chapter in your word. We pray that you would seal its truths and teaching to our hearts and minds. We pray that as we sing now the words of confession and the creed, we would sing them with joy in the Lord and with thankful hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.